So many parents get trapped in this illusion that somehow if I maintain this anger or this position that I'm somehow going to win. Well, no, you're going to be stuck in this toxic soup of anger and resentment. And not only that, but that toxicity is going to reach your kids. Are you ready? Are you sitting down? We're going to pull back the curtain on the divorce process, the mistakes and the missteps. How can couples navigate the divorce process? Can you still divorce in a healthy way? The conversation is as good as it gets. It's fun, insightful. It will change the way you think about your life and how to tackle life's challenges. The Shine On Podcast, season three. It's episode 58 of The Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. We have a terrific show today. Coming up, I am joined by award-winning documentary filmmaker, Ellen Bruno. She is our Shine On Podcast featured guest on this week's episode. We talk with Ellen about her new film, Split, The Teen Years, which is the sequel to Split, The Early Years. Wait until you hear this interview and watch these two films. They're powerful, eye-opening, educational, and an absolute must-watch for anyone thinking about divorce, going through a divorce, whether you're a parent, a child, divorce professional, you name it. Attorneys, judges, parent coordinators, therapists, custody evaluators. These films, this interview, it's all for you. It's for all of you. Dave, how good was this interview with Ellen? What did you learn from the conversation with Ellen Bruno? Well, just a nice new fresh perspective on divorce as from the perspective of the kids and that maybe as a parent myself, you always try to put the kids first, but one point she made that I thought was was pretty pretty spot on was no matter how great a job you do as divorcing parents, it's still a big transition for the kids. They're going through some stuff that you may not realize. And so important reminder, and I'm going to check out the film. That interview with filmmaker Ellen Bruno is coming up, but first, Dave, as you always do, Let's fire up the docket. Let's fire it up. Here we go. And now, let's see what's on the docket. First on the docket, news item comes to us from the Today Show. Item one. Headline reads, these four signs of divorce predict if a couple will split with over 90% accuracy. That's right. An outfit called the Gottman Institute has produced research that reveals four common communication pitfalls, and they list them here and say that they can predict whether a couple will divorce. Evan, what do you think? Dave, how many times as you think back to either your childhood or even more recently with colleagues or people that you just know and you thought to yourself, there's no way. <laughs> there's absolutely no conceivable way these two people are ever Ever, and I mean ever going to get divorced, mm -hmm. only to hear a few, year, a few years later that they're actually divorcing. And then you have the couple or the parents that you think, that's a relationship that I couldn't be in. Not in a million years. Why doesn't he just leave? Or I can't believe she hasn't filed for divorce and they're still going strong. Right. Celebrating anniversary year after year. And I look at this article and my takeaways. They're more on how to work on and address problems that exist, which the article talks about. Toxic criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, contempt. And Dave, I love making a friendly bet every <laughs> now and then. I think you owe me a steak dinner and a baseball game as, as I think about it. Oh, but trying right? to yep. predict which couples are going to live happily ever after or call it quits. Look, that's not a bet I'm going to be placing anytime soon. <laughs> I agree. And it, it seemed like... It was a little bit of Captain Obvious here. If if the relationship includes toxic criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that that marriage might be in trouble. And by the way, if the relationship doesn't include any of those four things, there's a chance you get divorced also. That's so right. it's, it's, it's one of those things that, look, you never know what goes on behind closed doors. We move on. Next item comes to us from businessinsider.com. Item two. Headline reads, millions of millennials could soon enter a midlife crisis, but they're going to spend and divorce less than prior generations. Interesting thought about that generation. What 
What did you think of this article, Evan? Dave, the millennial generation, look, it's a fascinating one, especially when it comes to marriage, money, and divorce. I'll say from my perspective, prenups, I'm seeing people want to enter into them more now than ever before. Younger people who are entrepreneurs or starting businesses, and I'm seeing the approach and the mindset of those looking to enter a prenup very different on how people think about money, approach money, and how willing people are to have that conversation. But I know you have kids and what are what are your thoughts? What are you seeing? What do you expect to see? What makes you nervous about seeing? I can't figure out millennials at all, really. I mean, my, <laughs> my, my kids aren't, they aren't quite, I think they're a little young to be millennials, but we, we all, midlife crisis is a real thing for sure. But I don't understand these kids today, Evan. I do see that the, the younger generation looks at things differently. So I wish them all the best. But And for your business, Evan, I hope they still keep getting divorced at a reasonable clip. Item three is an interesting article from an interesting source. Item three. Now, the headline of this article, Evan, reads, Think three times before hiring a lawyer for a divorce or a child custody situation. Family law attorneys are not necessary. According to this article, which sings the praises of the value of private investigators, and it'll come as no coincidence to find out that Magnum Investigations is where we find this article. But I thought it was interesting, Evan. What did, what did you think about this, this piece of potential propaganda? Dave, I'm struggling with this piece. <laughs> On the one hand, I want to rip this to shreds. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I... Obviously, I couldn't agree with anything that's written here. And yet, on the other hand, I don't want to give this garbage piece and advice more time than, in my opinion, I think is necessary. And if this private investigator truly got it, he would make divorce attorneys his best friend. Mm. Instead, as I read it, it basically seeks, whether he intends it or not, to alienate divorce attorneys out there. Who's going to recommend this guy? Dave, if you were a divorce attorney... Would you recommend this guy? Would you say to your client, you know what? I got the PI for you. And then pass this guy's contact information after reading this. No one. And we- I mean, let, Dave, let me tee up some of what's written in this piece. Sure. It's not an attorney who wins cases. Instead, the private investigators are the game changer. Mm. <laughs> Never let anyone, including your attorney, know that you have retained a private investigator. Don't tell your own attorney. (laughs) How about this, Dave? Smart individuals. You sitting down, by the way? (laughs) Happily, I am, yes. All right. (laughs) Smart individuals never hire a lawyer until they first build their case. Who the hell is going to help you build your case? (laughs) How do you know how to build the case? Yeah. How about this one? (laughs) Whatever you do, do not put your faith, trust, and money into an attorney. <laughs> Hire the PI instead. Dave, I can't talk more about this. <laughs> it's confounding, and we will speak of it no further. Now we're up to the portion of the program where we hear from you, listeners, in this installment of Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Today's edition of Ask Evan, we have a note from Hannah, who hails from Mount Kisco in Westchester, New York. Hannah writes the following, Dear Evan, I am recently engaged. While I am excited for our wedding and all that is to come, I am not particularly excited about the conversation I need to have with my fiance about a prenuptial agreement. While we have briefly discussed it, the time has come for us to really discuss it and move forward with getting it done. While I am not looking forward to starting the process, I know it is necessary and important as I own my own company and several real estate properties. Any advice on searching for an attorney who can help me in a collaborative way with the prenuptial agreement process? Great question, and congratulations on the engagement. First, let me say it's important to do your research and interview attorneys. Find out their process. Ask how they work. Ask how they approach the prenuptial agreement process. I often tell clients who call me about a prenup, it's important to remember you're not negotiating a divorce You're negotiating an agreement during one of the most exciting times in your life with someone you love. Find an attorney who can understand this, who can appreciate this. 
And at the same time, find an attorney who you trust and who can counsel and educate you on the process and how to structure an agreement to protect what is most important to you. In your case, your business interest in real estate. That's another edition of Ask Evan. If you want to submit a question for Evan to answer on the podcast, email producer Dave at david at pod617.com. Our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine Up podcast is award-winning documentary filmmaker Ellen Bruno. Based in San Francisco and with a background in international relief work, Ellen's films have focused on issues at the forefront of human rights. She is the producer, director, editor of the incredibly powerful, educational, and eye-opening films Split, The Early Years, and now she's out with Split, The Teen Years, which is a sequel to the award-winning film Split. Ellen, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks. It's great to be here. Ellen, you're at the forefront of really educating parents through these two powerful films, really from the children's perspective. So set the stage for all the listeners, Split the Early Years, and now the sequel, Split the Teenage Years. Right, yeah. So the idea for Split, which was the, the first film, which we finished about 10 years ago, was really, I made the film for kids. I, my parents divorced when I was a kid. There was no conversations happening. I was in a very traditional Catholic small community in Rhode Island. Nobody was talking about it. We had wild imaginations. And it was it was not a pretty picture. And so with four children between them, my parents didn't speak for 35 years. And you can imagine all of the high school and college graduations and births and weddings. And so 30 years later, when my kids are actually quite young, their dad and I separated. And I thought, and as they were growing in their early years, I realized there is so little change in how we do divorce in this culture. And can it really be 30 years later that it's still the monster under the bed? And that it still creates a lot of kind of fear and shame in our kids and parents still aren't doing it well. And what's going on here? And so really, I made the first film just for my, to sort of normalize the situation for my kids so they could see that they were not alone, that other kids, there are a lot of kids that are going through this. And and to not give them the sort of whitewashed version of don't worry, honey, everything's going to be okay, but to have kids that they listen to, kids listen to kids a lot more than they listen to their parents, you know, <laughs> and have kids say, look, okay, this is scary. I'm angry. This, I'm upset. This is how I feel. And this is how I move through it. So split the, the early years was 12 kids, no adults. No professionals, nobody putting any other perspective on it than kids talking about what's really going on in their in the, in their minds and in their hearts and and in a really straightforward way. No bullshit, no glossing over this is just gonna be fine. And it turned out to be really comforting for kids because they weren't getting the everything's gonna be okay. They were really getting the good, the bad, and the ugly. They were they were until they trusted these other kids and it was very calming for them. So right out of the gate, however, even though I made the film for kids, the professionals got their hands on it literally right out of the gate. It was, I was in Denver at a conference of collaborative professionals, and all of a sudden, it was like the light bulb went on and people realized, oh, wow, this is a really good way to actually get parents to you know, sort of put their, put their bullshit aside and their anger, their resentment, put the war aside for a moment and really truly focused on the ki kids. And so it became this incredible tool for not just mediators and collaborative professionals, but family lawyers. And it's being used in courts in a lot of places in this country. You have to sort of pass go and watch split before you can get into the court system. And so that's how that happened. And then throughout this all, people are saying, well, do you have anything for older kids? Split the early years, the six to 12 year olds. So I thought, well, maybe I should just go back and see how these kids are doing, these same 12 kids. And so I started kind of poking around and making some calls. And, and these kids were really excited. They was like, yeah, I'd, I'd sit down and talk to you again. And, and hence the next film. So that was sort of the evolution of, of that. Yeah. Ellen, that's fantastic to hear. There's so much I want to I want to ask you about based on your answer. You mentioned that this film, you mentioned Denver in a conference and, and really the, the film and who it appeals to and really the broad audience. And I can tell you that I thought the film was 
extraordinary. I mean, I thought whether you're a family law attorney like myself, whether it's a judge, whether it's a parent coordinator, whether it's a mediator or collaborator, whether no matter who the professional is, if you're in the divorce world or you're a parent and you're thinking about divorce or you're a child and you find yourselves in a situation where your parents are separating and getting divorced, one of the things I absolutely loved about the film was that there is, there is not a person that this film can't touch and can't reach out to in some way, shape, or form and change the way that all of us think about the divorce process. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting, especially in, in the realm of family law and the court system, right? The mantra really is for the best interests of the children, right? Everybody is talking about the best interests of the children. Well, where is the voice of those kids? The voice of those kids never comes up. It's never part. I, I was in the system for 10 years in a very high conflict divorce. I'm not proud of it. It was the hell realms. And I had a fabulous attorney and we became friends and we were sitting at, at year 10 having dinner. And she said, oh, I had a rough day. I had the toughest case. She said, it was nothing like yours. And I was like, what do you mean it was nothing? She said, oh, Land, yours was terrible. There was nothing you could do to make, a, make any difference. And, and, and then she met my kids after dinner and she said, in 40 years, these are the only kids I have met in 40 years of my practice. Wow. And that's saying something. So we have this kind of conceptual idea of the best interests of the kids, and we have all kinds of studies and things that dictate what is considered the best interests of the kids. But where really are the voices of the kids? I'm not talking about a particular case where Johnny wants to live with dad. I'm just talking about in general, what is the experience of these kids and how can not only parents, but professionals understand in a more real way what that experience is and understand the ramifications of the choices they're making. I mean, they, the most, I recently learned the most searched phrase with the word divorce in it is the effect of divorce on children. But what we know from that is parents are waking up at three o'clock in the morning saying, how the hell am I going to screw up my kids if I leave my husband, right? And that's foremost on people's minds at the same time they almost don't have the capacity to really take in what their child's experience is at that moment because it, it, it's, it's almost intolerable, right? A parent is going through all of the emotional, psychological chaos of separation or divorce, and they're trying to do what's best for the kids, but they, they, you know, they almost can't deal with, with knowing how Johnny is really doing. It's almost... And so there's something about these films that it provides a comfortable degree of separation. These are not their kids talking to them, but they know damn well there's a lot of experiences that kids are having, but they can actually take it in. They can actually be open to it. It's just a comfortable enough degree of separation from their own reality so that they can actually consider, oh, wow, maybe my kid is going through that. Or they know very clearly and intuitively that that is very much the experience of their child. And so... It's, it's been, there've been a lot of surprises in the rollout of these films. I mean, who could have imagined how and why, as you say, this can open people's hearts. But as you know, as an attorney, people get so entrenched in their particular positions. And how do you crack that? How do you really, and believe me, I've been there. It's not easy. Getting parents to really focus, right, on the children is one of the hardest things, whether it's from the attorney perspective, from the mental health perspective from really anyone who touches parents in their right. lives and when they're going through divorce. But Ella, let me ask you, because you touch on your own experience, the conversation you had with your attorney, we hear so much about the concerns and problems with the family court system, not just where I practice here in New York or where you're located in California, but really around the country. And you talk about giving more of a voice, giving children platform as you mm -hmm. do so beautifully in your films. How could judges, experts, and really those tasked with the responsibility of improving the divorce system, the family court system, benefit from watching these films? Well, yeah, I, we really, as we sort of push these films out and try to get into the very people you're mentioning, we sort of see the people in the mental health and the, the law realm as the, we, we see them as sort of first points of first contact, sort of first responders, right? And attorneys in the court system and mental health professionals, they have an incredible opportunity at that moment, at the point of first response, the point of first contact, 
to, to set the path, to set parents' intentions in a way that can keep them out of court, that can really align them with, you know, well, it's not only best for their kids, but it's best for them. I mean, for God's sakes, how many people are caught in the hell of anger and resentment and carry it with them to their grave, for God's sakes? I mean, you've had children with this person that you once loved, and you are both holding on to so much negative energy. It is so consuming. It is so toxic. I see it all the, the time. It's, it's, I see it all the time. I mean, it's, it's their focus, their anger, the hostility. I mean, it, it's, and it takes years. I mean, it oh. takes years where, where parents just don't let go. And look, emotion drives positions people take, their view of how they approach discussing divorce with children or what they say about the other parent. And there's such a focus on winning, putting such an emphasis in that when it's not yeah. about that. Nobody wins. It's about transition. It's about a different family dynamic. But getting people out of that mindset that you talk right. about, it's a challenge. And it's really yeah. detrimental to the children. Yeah. And the parents, I have to keep on going back. And that's the thing parents need to understand is, yes, of course, we all want what's best for our kids. We want to create the best situation possible for them, but we also want to be happy in our own lives. And so many parents get trapped in that this illusion that somehow, if I maintain this anger or this position in response to the other parent, that I'm somehow going to win. I'm somehow going to be better off, happier. Well, no, you're going to be stuck in this toxic soup of anger and resentment. And not only that, but that toxicity is going to reach your kids. Without a doubt, I mean, something that's really interesting, this is just an aside, one of the segments of Split Up, the, the teen years, is really kids talking about looking forward in their own life. They're teens, they're young adults, they're beginning to get into romantic relationships. The truth of it is that these kids are taking their cues from their parents. They're looking at their parents at how their parents do relationships, how their parents deal with difficulty. And so there's this really deep imprinting in their psyche. And so when they're facing romantic relationships. They have no faith. They have no, no path. They have no skills other than the worst of it, right? And so you listen to these kids who are articulate, right, intuitive, and they're talking about looking forward in, 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 in their life. And a lot of them are saying, I, I don't know if I can do this. Just, I don't have any faith in this system. I don't have any faith in a relationship. At the same, and we see a direct correlation with the old, the, the, the second film, the kids whose parents sort of get it together, the kids whose parents actually can get it together and be together for the kid's birthday or be together for a holiday. Those are the kids that are thriving. I mean, that's just the reality of it. For God's sakes, if parents can do something, sit down with your kid, go and spend your kid's birthday with them and the other parent. For God's sakes, get it together. And do that for two hours and find a way for that to be an energetically okay, fine thing. And it's so simple. The solutions are often so simple and parents can be so safe. And, and, and it, it really, because parents are so lost in the chaos, the emotional kind of chaos of, of divorce and separation, I really think this is where professionals come in. This is really where professionals can make a difference and be the guide and say, look, okay, yeah, okay, that's true. Okay, whatever happened, that happened. Yeah, it sucks. It's terrible. Yeah, all right. I'm, you know, whatever. Okay, how, how are we going to move forward here in a way where you can have a peaceful life and you can be as, and you can create the best situation for your child and Spend your energy figuring out how to do that rather than spending your energy trying to figure out how to get after the other parent. And, and it, so it's a deeper cultural problem. It's a problem in our society, really. It's interesting when you look at other cultures and the way they deal with separation and, and divorce. I, for example, I, I'm very connected to the Tibetan community because I'm my relief work. And the Tibetan, the Tibetan couples move in and out much more, more fluidly of relationships. There's no... There's none of this stigma or judgment or shame. It's just the way that culture is, is, is structured. And, and so everybody flourishes. We, our culture, it, it, it's hard for our, the people around us. For example, when I was going through a divorce, the way my community felt they could best support me was to trash my kid's dad. Okay, yeah, he's a jerk. Oh, yeah, I always knew. Oh, yeah, oh, God, you got to get rid of oh, Who's that helping? 
for God's sakes. And, 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 and they need to, it, it's very true that a kid sees themselves as both parents. You trash one parent in front of the kids, you're trashing that kid. And so there's this kind of wounding that happens with this negative talk about the other parent. And just even kids are so intuitive and just energetically how parents are in situations. And so we have a lot to learn as a culture. And that's part of what we're trying to do is kind of turn the ship a little bit and and say, okay, what are other possibilities for moving through this to make everybody happier? Ellen, you mentioned the stigma of divorce. And, and look, the stigma of divorce, it's not what it used to be. And that's a good thing. It's a positive thing. And divorce for many people, unfortunately, is quite common. With that said, we as a society minimize the magnitude of divorce and play it off as no big deal. And therefore, as a result, do we minimize the monumental impact on children? Oh, I think so. That is so well said. It's true. We do move in and out of relationships more freely. And I, that's fine with me. I have no judgment about what's happening with our family structures. That's not what my work is all about. But even in the best of circumstances, it is a monumental change. It is a total game changer for a child. Some, in some cases, it could be a really positive move. But to not acknowledge how profound that change is, even in the best of circumstances, is really doing great disservice to the kids. I mean, and when I began this whole process, but one of the, the, the old truths is that kids often blame themselves for their parents' divorce. And it was interesting when we were shooting the first film, the sound recorder, so we were driving back from one of the shoots and he said, he said, wow, when I was 10, we sat down at the kitchen table and my father turned around and said, that damn fish tank makes so much noise. And it was my son, it was the kids, right? <laughs> and the next day his father left. Well, Jeremiah spent the rest of his childhood in young adulthood, I'm not kidding, into his 20s thinking that his father left because that it, it was in relation to his fish tank that was gnawing the hell out of him and he just couldn't take it and he got up and left. Well, Jeremiah is a clear-thinking, smart adult. Yet, why is it that that, that sense, of, of, that sense of, of fault or that sense of blame happens? Because our kids construct their realities in relation to us. We're a very child-centered society. Everything we do in our cultures is in relation to our children. So, of course, then when something horrible happens in a kid's perspective, that's also in relation to that child. Suddenly, it's not, not about the kid. Oh, it's not about you. It's not about you. Well, the way kids perceive their family and their relationship to the family, their place in that, it, it very much in their mind is often their fault. And I heard that time and time and time again. And so we need to be really mindful of that. And there's a way that really the framing has to begin very early in the process. And... There needs to be clarity. There needs to be some degree of honesty with a child. I'm not saying a kid can listen to everything, but a kid knows we're bullshitting them. And, and also, if we don't give our kids enough answers about what's happened or what is going to happen, as I did when I was a kid, kids have wild imaginations. And believe me, they'll come up with the worst case scenario. Well, and I found that fascinating because one of the themes or one of the points in, in Split the Teenage Years I, was... The, I, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. It was really the curiosity, and you touched on it, the curiosity of the teenagers. Really, they wanted to know, as they look back and reflect, they wanted to know what happened between their parents. And so there's, there's children wanting this honesty. How important is it for at that young age for parents to be honest? How much is too much? Well, that's a, that's a question that, that's a very tricky question. Of course, it's case by case. You're not going to tell an eight-year-old, oh, yeah, your mom had an affair and that's why we're separating, obviously. But kids are in, I think people underestimate, I think trauma is, is an appropriate word to use in this. Divorce can be very traumatic and trauma does this, it imprints emotionally people. And then it becomes a point of reference further in their life. Divorce isn't something that happens and then it's done and then we get over it for kids. Kids remain a kid of divorce. I remain a kid of divorce. My, my sisters and I joke, do you think mom and dad are going to get back together? Both of my parents have passed on, but there's a truth to that. It is like this, this idea of the way families are supposed to be when your family is not like that. That's where a lot of the shame comes from. My family's broken. My family has failed. Kids, kids 
create those ideas in relation to, of course, the way stories are told. Look, I, I started my work doing refugee relief. I was in war zones. I was in refugee camps. The fact is, the reason I'm making films is because survivors have much, survivors are great teachers for us. They always have been. Now, it could be a survivor of the Khmer Rouge regime. It could be a, a, a teenage survivor of sex trafficking in, in Thailand, or it could be a kid who's surviving to us. Now, I don't mean to over-dramatize divorce and, divorce and call it a, a, it's survival, but the truth of it is, as humans, our human impulse, our need is to make sense of what's happening in our lives. We need to create a story to make sense of what happened, what's, what's happening in difficult situations in our lives. And that story becomes the foundation for how we move forward. And so this is where it's really important for both parents and professionals to help a child make sense of that story. If dad is going blah, blah, blah here and mom is going blah, blah, blah there and the kids try to make sense of these two very different stories, it's going to be very chaotic emotionally for that child. However, if parents make an agreement to come together and sit down and say, look, we love you very much. You were born of love, which is a very important thing for kids to understand. And for most cases, that's true. And... Yeah, things are not, whatever the language is, things aren't working out. We've decided we're going to be happy or we're going to try, our family's going to change now, but we'll always love you and we're always going to be your parents. And we don't have all the answers or we don't know exactly what this is going to look like. Please talk to us about it. As we move forward, we're going to do the best we can. It's going to be a little hard, but this is what we're trying. Do you have any questions? Do you have any things that you're afraid of? The kid could say, well, am I ever going to see grandma again? Am I ever going to see model again? You know, what about my brother? Am I going to a new school? There's a whole host of things that are, if, if, if a kid isn't given that opportunity, they're going to take all of those questions and all of those fears, and they are just going to grow and create a lot of chaos in a child's mind. One of the kids said to, I, when I asked her, what is the one thing that you want to say to the parents as they start the process of divorce or separation? She said, I think the most important thing for kids to know is that they came of love. And because so often parents are busy erasing the history of their relationship or, or tainting it with a negativity of what's happening, not allowing the kid to have a photo in their room of their parents together. My daughter was 23. Her favorite photo is her dad and I together in a photo when she was about to holding her. And clearly there was love in that photo. That is such an important touchstone for her. And I think the majority of kids need to believe that there was a time when their parents came together, they were born of love, and they were just weren't some mistake that their parents wished it happened. That's just creating a problem for them now because they're always fighting over time and fighting over you did and 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 so I think that's our responsibility as as parents and as professionals is to encourage a certain amount of straightforwardness and learn to listen. And, and understand that the choices we make are going to have such a profound effect on our kids as they move forward. And, and I, as I say, the kids who had the highest conflict 10 years later, between there's the highest conflict between parents. Those are the kids that have lost track of one parent or another. Kids, when they become teens and young adults and they have more choice about where they can spend their time, they are so sick of the, they are so sick of the war. And if the way that they can get out of that war is to just choose a side and stick with it, a lot of kids are going to do that. And Ellen, one of the things that I thought was so interesting in Split the Teenage Years is that many of the children, they reflected back. They spoke about more they tell their younger self. And look, it's easier said than done when you're in the moment and you're six or seven years old to have the, the, the benefit of what life is going to look like, what the relationship between your parents will be, but hearing the children at their teenagers reflect back, and I think it was Jonah who said something to the effect that as family changes, love and connection stays. Others said they would learn to go with the flow, that it's not the child's fault to accept change, you will be fine. When you heard these 
things from the children, having had the benefit of following these 12 children from film to film, how powerful were these moments for you when you're hearing the children reflect on what they would tell their younger self? Well, I mean, they were they're very powerful for me, both as, a, as an adult child, so to speak, and as a parent. And look, we're all just fumbling through this life doing the best we can, right? We're going for the best we can. We're not going for perfection here. And especially as parents. So I don't know what the heck we're doing half the time. We're just learning as we're going, right? But when I, I look at the the degree to which our kids are put in a position where often inadvertently, where they have to grow up really quickly, where they have to start parenting a parent who's depressed or overwhelmed. They have to manage, they have to deal with this sense of fairness. Well, if I spend, you know, Christmas morning with my mom, then my dad's going to feel like I don't love him. But then if I do with my dad and my mom, and so high, this one girl talks about her time pie, where she obsessively really thinks about her time with her family. Well, I think of it as a pie, this amount of time with my mom, this amount of time with my dad. And and then ultimately says, but it's always about them, what they're going to yeah. feel, what they're going to want, what about me? And that's something that seemed to be a, a bit of a universal truth that was emerging is that these kids are doing an awful lot of caretaking of parents in ways that parents, I think, do not have a clue. They're managing their emotions. So it doesn't, their emotions are not a burden on their parents. They're managing their time, their they're parsing out their their love. They're they're changing their behavior. They, they're even changing who they are. This whole idea of going back and forth. Every human being is different. So if a mother and a father establish their separate households, or a mother and a mother, a father, whatever the constellation is, two parents are establishing very different households with different personalities, oftentimes different cultures, different values. And that child is going back and forth from house to house. They're not just changing the bedroom they're sleeping in. They're changing who they are. And so it's this rotating sense of self. Oh, yeah. When I saw it with my kids, even something so mundane as clothing, my son would leave here in sweatpants and a ratty t-shirt, right? And I would go pick him up and he would be dressed with a little cap on and a little Bermuda shorts, red, white, and blue. And I was like, who are you? He would be using different language in each household. So was that something, was that something for you, just asking about that moment, yeah. was that something that took time to accept that there were going to be differences, that ch your child was going to be a little bit different depending on whose house he was staying in? That doesn't happen yes. overnight, that, that acceptance of it, I would think. No. And, and that's a very hard thing, especially if you're having a lot of conflict with the other parent, especially if you start to see the other parent in your child, of course, right? So you try to modify that behavior to make them more like you. You're just like your father. Well, one of the kids in the show said that, I'll tell you, my mother just keeps talking shit about my dad. And she looks at me and she's like, damn, you look just like him. I remember that. And, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so he says, particularly me more than my brothers, because I look just like my dad. I have to deal with, and I keep on saying, mom, I get it. And she doesn't get that I get it, but I get it. I, I don't need to be hearing that. So I think that something that's really, in terms of this back and forth and this being this, this, these personas almost that we, this morphing of personas that we're asking of our kids, I have, parents have no clue the degree to which that, which that happens. And so what parents need to understand is the transition from little, from my son, sort of this Lord Fauntleroy little boy with his cap and Bermudas on to the sweatpants kid in my house, right? He's not going to walk in the door and it's not going to be a quick transition. That kid needs time to transition. And that kid does not need hyper mom attention because I miss him so much because he, he's been gone for five days. And so, oh, let's get this. No, he needs to go sit in his room and do nothing or do whatever he wants for a few hours because he has to transition to become who he is again. And it's a, it's a very exhausting process. It is, we can't reduce it to, the bedroom, switching bedrooms, and then everything else is fine. This kid's got a whole social system, emotional system they need to switch. And we need to give our kids credit and space to do that. Our kids, they're working. Our kids are working really hard. And then there's the example in, in the film where one of the children, one of the teenagers talked about how the conflict between her parents was so high that I believe her father would not attend 
events unless he knew that the mother was not going to be present and the child was sort of the middle person exactly. letting the father know when her mom right. was not going to be there so then the dad would come. But even that issue was something to, to, to deal with and it's problematic because the child's in the middle, but then as a result, what happened, the child saw her father much less. Exactly. And, and that particular thing, exactly, she, her, her father would call and say, is your mom going to be there at the soccer game? Or is your mom going to be there at graduation or the school event? And if her mom was going to be there, he wouldn't show. And, and eventually she, she had very little contact. And that was deeply wounding for her. I, I think that he's taking care of himself by not showing up at those events, right? He's putting himself first. And, and, and by doing so, he's caused a lot, a lot of pain and hurt. And, and I just, again, we, we're doing the best we can, but, you know, parents really need to wake up and Pay attention and and start being a little more selfless in relation to this. Get out of the get out of the war, get out of the game, get out of the conflict, and show up in a real way for your kids. And Ellen, you gave this platform to children and teenage teenagers to really reflect upon their childhood and the divorce at the moment they went through it. But the teenage years, it's really an age group that I I often find is ignored. And what I mean by that is because children. When they're of a certain age, it's very easy for judges to say, well, I'm not going to be able to tell a 13-year-old or 15-year-old what to do. And if the child wants to spend the night at dad's or the child wants to go to mom's for a week, irrespective of whatever might be the parenting schedule or the parenting access agreement, judges often will say, there's nothing for me to do. So the perspective from the teenagers, how is that perspective, that voice, something that can get through to more people, beginning yeah. with their parents, then the professionals, yeah. and then really the judges and anyone who's involved yeah. in the divorce process, given that there's a reluctancy or a hesitation to make certain decisions and really to even hear issues that may come up when there's teenagers involved. Right. So when, when parents look at what's fair, right, and say in terms of time sharing, it's my half, it's your half. That's just the way. I, the fairness is in relation to the parent, and the fairness really is not necessarily in relation to the kids. And that's why I think the things that Jonas said were really quite profound about what really home is to him. And he said, home is that feeling of comfort when I can drop down with my family members in a place where I can feel safe and comfortable. And he said, transitioning when it was young, he said, when we were younger, going back and forth more, more um, often for him and his brother was a lot easier because our, our world was our parents, our family, and we needed that contact with the parents. So we needed more regular contact with the parents in order to maintain that relationship. He said, now, you know, I have a world outside of my family. I have friends. I have activity at school. It's just too burdensome to move around that much, you know, and it's such a relief to say, do a one week on, one week off with the parents. Or he said, my parents, if I really tell them, look, for whatever reason, I really feel like I need more time at one household this month or whatever, that they'll listen and at least consider that. And so I think flexibility is key, but flexibility means that parents need to be somewhat on the same page or at least have a conversation. So I think that one of the big takeaways is that the parenting schedule that's established for a six and an eight-year-old is not going to fly for a 16 and a 16-year-old kid. I mean, it's just, kids just can't be moved with all that's going on in their life to be making that many transitions as it becomes really problematic. And all of the kids just expressed a great sigh of relief when they had either longer stretches with parents or an altered parenting schedule. And as, as in the film, there were a couple of kids who had parents that were, had a difficult, difficult situation in relation to substance abuse, where even though the parenting schedule was passed out, where they're supposed to be spending time with this parent, they got to a point in their teens where they realized, I need to make a decision about myself. I need to do what's best for myself. And that's a really big, um, difficult thing for these kids because they're so used to making decisions in relation to external things, oddly, and taking care of, uh, taking care of others and, and not necessarily taking care of themselves. And they, they're realizing as they become teens and young adults that they need to learn how to put themselves first. 
they've been spending all this time dealing with this chaos of this relationship with their parents and the schedules and that's kind of the, the pot, the love pie and, and all of these things. And they get to a point where they realize, okay, what do I really need right now? <laughs> I don't need to be dealing with this parent who's no. up all night partying and I can't get him, can't sleep through the night. Or I just need to be in one place where I can get grounded. Or I, as one girl said, it's like you get to a point when you realize I'm going to college soon. And it's like when you're in the airplane and they say you need to put your oxygen on before you can help others. She said, I'm feeling like that's the place I need to learn how to take care of myself first at this point. And it's something that I haven't been able to do because I've been so busy taking care of everybody else until this point. So I think parents need to understand the level of burden that our kids are taking on. And as, as teenagers, I mean, come on, in the best of circumstances, it's not a joy ride for a lot of kids. But to be dealing with this other stuff when you're trying to evolve as a human being and grow into an adult and figure out who you are and what you want to do with the world. And then in, in the best of circumstances, that can be a hugely stressful time of life. And then to have this entire other emotional, psychological chaos that's being kind of forced on you by parents who can't take it on themselves or get their act together or be aware enough to understand how their actions are affecting you, it, it can be a problem. Yeah. Ellen, how did you go from working in international relief work to creating films about separation and divorce? And I know you touched on it, but it sounds like there's more similarities than people may think. Well... Exactly. I mean, actually, these are the first films I've ever made in the United States in the English language. And so most of my films have been of sex trafficking, you know, genocide, the political prisoners. And the common thread is that everybody is just trying to move through this life and make sense of things that are served up to them. And very often there are things beyond their control. It could be a, it could be a war going on. It could be a political situation. It could be a family change. We all as human beings are trying to move forward and be happy and find a way to have a, a, f a fulfilling life. And kids are very much in that place. Kids, kids, as I said earlier, they're trying to make sense of something that was hoisted on them that they had no say in and they had no power in the face of. Kids are served this up. They have no... as. As Jonas said, it doesn't matter what you do. It's not your ball of wax. It's your parents. And so, and that's the truth of it. It's something a kid served up. Nothing they can do about it. They may like it. They may not like it. Too bad. That's your life now. And so there's a similarity. How do people, how do people move forward? It's sort of a spiritual issue for all human beings. How do people move forward from a difficult situation that oftentimes they have no power to make any change? and 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 make sense of that and move forward with a whole self intact emotionally and psychologically. What skills does that call upon us as human beings to, to move forward? And so kids are very much in that place. And I've always found my fascination coming from the relief work was the most unlikely teachers for us. These teenage sex workers on the Burma border are the greatest teachers. These young Tibetan nuns that are in a Chinese prison getting tortured daily are our greatest teachers. These eight-year-old kids speaking the truth about what they're going through and how they're trying to make sense of it are the greatest teachers for us, the most unlikely teachers, but the most profound teacher teachers. And so I've always seen my work as just providing a platform. And it was very much like that with these kids. These kids showed up and they showed up with a story they wanted to tell. Didn't matter what my agenda was. It became very clear right off the bat in the conversation that these kids had a story they wanted to tell. And that's true of anybody. When you give them the space to speak their truth, then they'll come forward with what's deepest and most meaningful to them at that point in their life. And from that, we can all learn. And Ellen, you do that beautifully in your two films, split the early years and now split the teenage years. You give these children a voice. You give them a platform to really speak their truth in a powerful, raw, but no bullshit way that really comes across in an educational, in a, in a powerful way that really changed the way you think and people think about divorce and separation. Your two films, they're a must watch, like I said before, for parents, to children, to attorneys, to judges, to 
mental health professionals to policymakers to anyone and everyone involved in the divorce process. So tell everybody when and where that people can watch the film Split, the teenage years. Well, people can go to our website, which is splitfilm.org, and it's a pretty comprehensive website. And it's professionals can take one path in the website, parents can take another, courts can take another. And we've tried to make it clear to all sort of end users how they can best use these films in their work and to support kids and, and their parents. And so, and there's all you could screen the film on a website. You can host a, a local screening with other divorce professionals, mental health professionals, a local PTA and school systems. There's, we're open to any creative suggestion for public screenings or use of these films in the court systems. And there, there are several courts, court systems where families actually need to watch the films as, as part of the mediation orientation before they can sort of pass go and get into the court system. And so... There are a lot of creative uses. We're always open to sort of collaborations and new ideas. And so we can be reached through the website splitfilm.org. Ellen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was wonderful having you on. Thanks, Evan. I really appreciate you having me on. Episode 58 of the Shine Up Podcast, Ellen Bruno was great. Her background, her passion, her work, her remarkable two films, Split the Early Years and Split the Teenage Years, both they're a must watch. And I mean, they're that good. Producer Dave, as usual, you brought your A-game. What a show. <laughs> Another great one in the books. The library grows. And we encourage everyone to follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your pods. But I don't want to steal your thunder, Evan. You no, Dave, nobody says it like <laughs> you. But to anyone else, you can listen to the podcast on home major podcast platforms. And how about the shout out for Pod 617, Producer Dave. Wherever else you listen to your podcast, follow the podcast and subscribe. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.